0: Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames and I'll be your host for today's program. Well, today we're going to be returning to our series on the identity of the lost ten tribes of Israel. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Dutch people and their biblical identity. Now, here at Watch Jerusalem, we often reference our free book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy, written by Herbert W. Armstrong. You can order that or read it online on our website. Now, this book goes through in detail just what happened to the lost ten tribes of Israel. And it also details what happened to God's promise to David of a never-ending throne. Now, by way of quick uh, summary of this this book and, and just what happened to the lost tribes in general... Uh, during, the, during the days of King David and Solomon, Israel, ancient Israel was one single nation, the United Kingdom of Israel. But in the days of Solomon's son, his, his successor, Rehoboam, uh, the, the, the nation splits into two kingdoms. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that that was due to a due to a, a pretty significant disagreement about the rule from Judah, uh, f- from Rehoboam, his oppressive rule. And so we have the 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 northern ten tribes of Israel splitting off and creating the northern kingdom of Israel, and in the south we have the southern kingdom of Judah, made up of the the Jews. And it's interesting the very first time the word. Jew is used in the Bible. It's describing a a battle between the Israelites and the Jews. So a lot of people think that all Israelites are Jews. That's not actually the case. The Jews, uh, Jew is essentially a shortened form of the tribal name Judah. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Now at the end of the 700s, BCE, we have the Assyrian Empire sweeping into the northern kingdom of Israel. They conquer the, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Bible records, as does secular history, that the Israelites were taken and deported, essentially, uh, and the, uh, the biblical record shows that they, they were deported en masse up into northern Iran, and then the record goes silent. They disappear from history and become known as the Lost Ten Tribes. And people have been speculating for for centuries, perhaps millennia, as to where these tribes went, what happened to them. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, the southern kingdom of Judah, they continued to remain in the land uh, right up until the Babylonian destruction at the start of the 6th century BCE. And they deported many of the Jews as well. But then, the, obviously, the continuing biblical account talks about the return of the uh, many of the Jews to the land during the days of of uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and, and so so on and so forth. But what of the lost ten tribes? What happened to the lost ten tribes now there's uh, some really interesting prophecies in the bible genesis forty nine is one in particular where Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, sits down with his twelve sons and prophesies to them what shall befall you in the last days, as verse one says, he prophesies what would happen to the lost tribes in the to, or rather to his sons in the last days. so these tribes have got to be somewhere on the scene? Where did they go? In, in the United States and Britain and Prophecy, Mr. Armstrong pieces together the puzzle from many biblical passages, uh, from secular history, showing that the northern ten tribes migrated from where they were left off in, the nor- in northern Iran, right up into Europe, and then into the British Isles, Scandinavia, a- and so on. He, uh, he wrote about specific tribes remaining together and, and turning into specific nations. Uh, and, and as the title of his book uh, points out, he focused primarily on the two birthright nations, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Mr. Armstrong proved that Ephraim prophesied in the Bible to become a company of nations. Ephraim would become the Britain and the British Commonwealth and Manasseh, who was prophesied to be uh, a great nation, would go on to become the the single greatest superpower of all time, the United States of America. So, again, while the main thrust of the United States and Britain and prophecy is about the United States and Britain, obviously, the primary tribes, those birthright holders, Ephraim and Manasseh, he also, uh, he also mentions, at least briefly, uh, reference to the other tribes and what happened to them and we can read about that on page 108 he says we lack space for a detailed explanation of the specific identity of all these other tribes in the nations of our 20th century suffice it to say here that there is ample evidence that these other eight tribes of the lost 10 tribes uh Ephraim and Manasseh, that these other eight tribes have descended into such northwestern European nations as Holland, Belgium, Denmark, northern France, Luxembourg, Switzerland, Sweden, Norway. The people of Iceland are also of Viking stock. The political boundaries of Europe as they exist today do not necessarily show lines of division between descendants of these original tribes of, of Israel. End of quote. So what specifically, then, of of Holland, as Mr. Armstrong talked about, or, as it's more commonly known, the Netherlands? There is actually an abundance of evidence showing that this modern nation is made up of the descendants of the tribe of Zebulun. So first, we'll look at the tribal parallels between the Dutch and the Zebulunites, and then we'll trace their migration, their journey. Now, back to Genesis 49, verse 1. Again, we, we read here that this is a prophecy for each of the 12 sons of Jacob about what their descendants would become, essentially, what they would be like, their features, their, their mannerisms, the, the the what their nations, essentially, would turn into. Verse 1 again says, And Jacob called unto his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you, in the last days. And in verse 13, we read about Zebulun. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea, and he shall be for an haven of ships, and his border shall be unto Zidon. Now this is a really interesting passage because you take out a a map of the tribal allotment of ancient Israel, and Zebulun is landlocked. Zebulun is landlocked. And so this wasn't fulfilled anciently. And again, as verse 1 points out, this is a prophecy for the last day. So Zebulun would become a haven of the sea, a haven of ships. Now, the Dutch people, like no other, have been linked to, to the sea and, and seafarers. This is essentially a nation of boat builders, fishermen seafarers, and the first use of the word ship in the Bible is in this passage here. Uh, Zebulun is a haven of ships, and according to an ancient document, pieces of which have been found going back uh, to the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, around the second century BC, according to this document, Zebulun is described as the first to build ships with sails, Now, over the past several centuries, the the Netherlands has been the mecca for shipping. Rotterdam, up until recently, was the world's largest port, which is pretty incredible considering the small size of the Netherlands itself. Now, the Dutch coast is indeed a haven for ships. It's the longest range of natural dunes without rocks in the world. There's, There's a pretty mild climate all year round for shipping. So for hundreds of years, for, for the past several centuries, the Dutch have been known as the seafarers of the world. The The Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, came all the way from Russia to the Netherlands to learn shipbuilding. The, you, there's the Dutch sailors, Dutch pirates, Dutch explorers uh, discovering places like where I'm from, New Zealand, the, the Dutch explorer Abel Tasman. Now there's the there's the Farrar Fenton translation of this verse, Zebulun's blessing, Genesis forty nine verse thirteen. It says, "Let Zebulun dwell on the shore of the sea, on the shore of the ships, and extend his legs to the fishery." And another translation reads, "At his borders he will catch fish." And this, again, is a is a major part of Dutch industry, fishing. Now it's hard to believe that this. This was done by the Zebulonites back in ancient Israel, considering their tribal placement again, but but this certainly became a major part of Zebulonite or Dutch industry. There's the famous expression that every Dutchman is a fisherman, and they've been essentially blessed with the fish in, in the sea around the Netherlands. There's So I read, there's no poisonous fish in the waters, in in either salt or fresh water. And the major part of the Dutch fishing industry is herring, is in catching herring. Now in the 16th to 17th centuries, just just a few hundred years ago, one in five Dutch were involved in the industry of catching herring. That's just herring. One-fifth of the Dutch population was involved in herring. That's not including other things like boat building or, or other things related to the sea. That's the herring industry. Think of that. Now the Dutch to this day have that awful tradition to me of swallowing down raw herring, and they they seem to have some kind of affinity with with the fish. But all the power to them. If it uh, if if it if it's that good, I personally couldn't do that myself. Now, according to the above-referenced apocryphal account, uh, the, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, uh, this also describes Zebulun as catching fish for Jacob and God giving him wisdom and understanding in, in making a seafaring vessel and in having knowledge of the currents. So the Zebulunites, fishermen, shipbuilders, the tribe of sailing, essentially, having knowledge of currents. And this is shown on the banner, the ancient Hebrew banner of Zebulun. And this banner, the, the 12 tribes each had their own separate banners, their own flags. This, this banner was of a ship. And the ship is still a significant symbol of the Netherlands. But the, the prime heraldic symbol of the Netherlands is a lion. And even this fits remarkably well with the Bible, because as numbers two describes the tribes of Israel were divided into four blocks of three tribes, and the the uh, tribe of Zebulun marched together with, with Issachar and with Judah and they marched the three of them marched under the banner of the tribe of Judah and what was the symbol of the tribe of Judah it was a lion. And so it, it, it fits that that's still currently the heraldic symbol of the Netherlands. And the flag of Zeeland in the Netherlands is quite interesting. It's a lion emerging from the sea. Now back to verse 13 here, we, we talk about Zebulun being a haven. And the word haven in Hebrew is hof. And that's very similar to the Dutch word, Germanic word, Dutch word hof. It's a common word particle in Dutch and it has a variety of different meanings building, court, garden, yard. So, this Hof, this haven, you, you even have a link here with the Dutch language. So, let's get into another prophecy of what the Zebulonites would look like. Again, completely different from ancient Zebulun. Completely different from ancient Zebulun. You've got now a seafaring people a seafaring people, and this is shown in Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy 33, of verse 18, we read, And of Zebulun he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the people unto the mountain, there shall they offer sacrifices of righteousness, for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hid in the sand. And literally, the Dutch have sucked back the sea like no other people. Approximately half the land of the Netherlands has been reclaimed from the sea. And a full third of the nation lies below sea level. Natural sand dunes have been constructed. And uh, dikes and dams and floodgates provide defenses against storm surges from the sea. River dikes as well, they prevent flooding from the water flowing into the country along the major rivers, the, the Rhine and the Meuse. And then they have a complicated system of drainage ditches, canals, pumping stations, windmills, all sorts of things to keep these low-lying parts dry that have essentially been sucked from, claimed from the sea, keeping those areas dry for habitation and for agriculture. Now this Deuteronomy 33 passage talks about sucking the abundance of the seas and the sand, and the Dutch do this, of course, not just with reclaiming precious land itself, but also through fishing, as we've talked about, and also through dredging large quantities of oil, which they do from the North Sea. And also we can't forget the Dutch Zebulonite colony in South Africa, the Boers, because these people accomplish essentially the same. In in South Africa particularly, there's the mining industry, mining gold, literally drawing treasure from the sand. And there's more regarding jewelry. Exodus 39 uh, talks about jewels, each one that represents a tribe of Israel. And the symbol of Zebulun is the diamond. Now, Amsterdam has uh, been famous for diamond cutting. And then, of course, Dutch South Africa became the land of uh, diamond mining. Uh, It was here that the largest ever diamond was discovered. I believe it was called the Cullinan diamond. So back to the treasures of the sea, because it's not all peaches and cream, you could say. Isaiah 9 verse 1 actually describes Zebulun being afflicted by the way of the sea, and what nation has been so repeatedly afflicted throughout history by horrific flooding. It's been the Dutch people, uh, Dutch fishermen in the, in 1953. In 1953, there was a big uh, flooding catastrophe. 1,500 people were killed in a single night, and Dutch fishermen actually uh, were quoting this verse, this verse that references Zebulun, and Zebulun's affliction by the sea in Isaiah 9, verse 1. Now, in Judges 5, we skip to another uh, attribute of the Zebulunites. This is the Song of Deborah, and here she describes uh, just following a battle uh, to free the Israelites from a Canaanite overlord. She describes each of the tribes and describes some, some unique uh, attributes to some of the tribes, and we read about this with regard to Zebulun in verse 14. She, she prophesied, or she writes, And out of Zebulun they that handle the pen of the writer. So here she's going through a few different tribes. Uh, she describes in this verse Ephraim and Benjamin, and here she describes Zebulun in connection with handling the pen of the writer. Now, to talk about the, the Dutch as writers, uh, Gutenberg, the, the German, uh, famous German who's first considered to have invented the printing press, believed to be the first person to, to invent this, actually the Dutch have always contested this. There's a Dutchman called Lorenz Koster who actually had the printing press before Gutenberg in 1440. And new evidence has, has come out of a 15th century German document that actually shows that before Gutenberg, before Gutenberg and his famous Gutenberg Bible, prints were already being made in Holland. So Holland uh, really paved the way for the printed word, for printing. Dutch calli- calligraphy also is is quite famous. Uh, could mention a, a lot more in connection with... with Dutch with the Dutch and writing but the Dutch have always been advanced in this field and for most of the past 500 years throughout the Renaissance throughout the modern period the Dutch were the leading nation in printing and besides that the Dutch are exceptionally multilingual nation many Dutch uh, Dutch people can get at le- get by at least with four different languages Dutch English German and French to to at least some degree, and that's that's a whole lot more than can be said for England. Now, given the these above described traits, the the name of Zebulun takes on greater meaning as well. The name Zebulun comes from a primitive root zaval, uh, meaning dwelling. Now, individual Hebrew letters each have meanings, and the three letters of this word zaval uh, carry carry meaning in themselves. You've got zine, which can represent a piercing instrument, like a fishhook. You've got bet, which represents a house, or you could say a hof. And then you've got lamed, which represents teaching and instruction. So all these are attributes, especially inherent in the descendants of Zebulun, in the Dutch people. Now, essentially, besides these verses, the, the Bible doesn't have much to say about Zebulun, Zebulun in the Bible, didn't so much do anything spectacular, nothing greatly incredible, but also nothing greatly wrong to speak of. They're, they're not highlighted like certain of the other tribes are, like Levi and Sim, Simeon for for a violent act of destruction, or or Reuben for for uh, for sinful romantic passion. Uh, Zebulun and the tribe of Issachar uh, are essentially the only tribes that aren't really described as doing anything supremely great or supremely wrong in the Bible. And actually, there's another uh, somewhat apocryphal story that Zebulun didn't actually participate in selling Joseph. Now, for whatever it's worth, maybe Zebulun did uh, participate in selling Joseph to the, I believe it was the Midianite traders. Uh, selling him then into Egypt. Maybe Zebulun did, maybe he didn't. But if this is true, if Zebulun uh, didn't participate in that, that might have some relation to the fact that the the modern-day tribe of Joseph, Britain and America, are on pretty consistently good terms with the Dutch, especially compared to other European nations. And uh, Queen Elizabeth I once said about England and the Netherlands, The one cannot without the other. There's a 1968 tour guide as well, uh, English tour guide, which says that of all continental peoples, the Dutch are most like the British. So so you may have a close tribal connection there between Ephraim, Manasseh, the the two tribes of Joseph, and the Dutch, the Zebulonites. Now on that note, on the Dutch being a peaceful people, Comparatively, throughout history, you've got the the modern International Court of Justice, which was built at the Hague, and essentially throughout throughout much of the Netherlands' history, they've they've largely just fought defensive wars. They're a pretty remarkably peaceful country. Now, First Chronicles twelve verse thirty verse thirty three names the Zebulonites as quote not of double heart. Now, I recently discovered a rather amusing article that was asking the question, why are the Dutch so unbelievably rude? (laughs) It uh, went on to talk about how straight-talking and to the point, cutting and opinionated, that the Dutch can be. You could say they're certainly not a people of double heart. I swung it by, my Dutch friends, and and they concurred with the article. The article stated, quote, The habit of directness is rooted in Dutch history and geography. The right-wing politician, Pim Fortuyn, famously declared to widespread acclaim, I say what I think, and I do what I say. Certainly not a man of double heart there. So in light of all of this, then, I want to read from a secular book. This is the biography of John Adams, the, uh, one of the founding fathers of America and the second president of the United States of America. And he spent some time in the Netherlands. And this is the account of the Dutch, of the Netherlands. And I want you to, to, to see how closely it reads to what we have read about Zebulun in the Bible. Zebulun being a, a haven for ships in the latter days, a haven for ships, a haven for fishing, uh, people that would claim the land from the sea. So this is from David McCullough's book, John Adams. He writes, The extraordinary ingenuity and industry of the Dutch in wresting land from the sea were legendary. The innumerable canals, bridges, dams, dikes, sluices, and windmills needed to cope with water, to drain land, and to hold back the sea and that all had to be kept in working order so that life could go on, made first-time visitors stand back in awe. Amsterdam alone had more than 500 bridges arching its web of canals. Predominantly Protestant, Holland was known for its tolerance, for allowing religious freedom to thousands of European Jews, French Huguenots, and other Christian sects. The 17th century had been the golden age of the Dutch, in one of the most astonishing upsurges of commercial vitality in all history, they had become the greatest trading nation in the world, the leading shipbuilders and mapmakers. Amsterdam, the busiest port in Europe, became the richest city in the world, and with their vast wealth, the Dutch became Europe's money lenders. In the arts and letters, it was the age of Rembrandt, Vermeer, Frans Hals and Van Rustel, of the poet Joost van de Vondel, Of Grotius in Theology and Maritime Law, Spinoza in Philosophy. Amsterdam's immense harbour thronged with shipping. Wherever the eye ranges, masts and sails appear, wrote an English traveller. Bells are sounding and vessels departing at all hours, end of quote. So that's a fascinating account, just a brief summary of the Dutch there. And it's interesting that that phraseology in the 17th century, it had one of the most astonishing upsurges, uh, becoming the greatest trading nation in the world, leading shipbuilders, mapmakers talking about it being the busiest port in europe all this for a pretty tiny nation really pretty tiny nation the 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 nation of holland or the netherlands right well we'll take a short break there and following that we'll discuss the migration of zebulun and the israelites and we'll mention a little on the tribe of issachar and talk about zebulun's future Welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm Chris Eames, and today we've been talking about the identity of the tribe of Zebulun and how Zebulun actually describes to a T the Dutch people today. Now, again, uh, Genesis 49 we've been through is, is an end-time prophecy or prophecy for the latter days, describing what each of the sons of Jacob, the 12 sons which were gone to become 12 tribes, what they would be like and you, you could really say that the, that the Dutch people fit perfectly with the description of Zebulun. So now we'll, we'll, we've been through the parallels between them, the characteristic parallels and the prophecy relating to the, what the Zebulunites would be like in these last several centuries. And now let's look at the journey of the Israelites, how they ended up there. We've talked about uh, the Assyrian invasion of ancient Israel, the Bible describing the deportation of the Israelite tribes, the, the, what became known as the lost 10 tribes, up as far as northern Iran, and then the record goes silent. So where did Israel go? Where did these 12 tribes, including Zebulun, uh, 10 tribes rather, the lost 10 tribes, where did they go? Now, Bible prophecy makes it clear Uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 8 states that the Israelites would end up in the countries to the north, the coasts, and the ends of the earth, i.e. the commonwealth nations such as South Africa, Australia, New Zealand. And Zebulun would certainly fit with that prophecy of Israel ending up on the coasts. Now, Isaiah 49 verse 12 aff- affirms that they would be largely found northwest of Palestine. Multiple scriptures make mention of how end time Israel and would end up among the isles. And so what territory is in the northwest of the Holy Land with coasts, isles, and control of dominion to the ends of the earth? Well, it is, of course, Western Europe, the British Isles and Scandinavia. Now, one of the early leaders of the northern kingdom of Israel was King Omri, and he was a well-respected general, established the new capital of Israel in Samaria. So, along with the term Israel, for foreign nations, they largely referred to Israel by, by the name of this man, Omri. Uh, Israel became known as the house of Omri. But Omri is is sort of a poor translation. The, the first letter is doesn't have an English alternative, and the Assyrians called them Kumri or Gomri. So these captive Israelites, these Kumrites or Gomri, Gomrites, people of the house of Kumri or Gomri, they were carried out as slaves by the Assyrian Empire and sent to the faraway land of the Medes in northwest Iran. And the Assyrians had a tendency for long deportations like this to try and remove any connection of the peoples with their original land. So it's around this point in time in secular history that we have a civilization on the scene known as the Chimerians. Khmerians. Now these people are known to have migrated up into Asia Minor, and they're believed to have come from the region of Iran, again, where the Qumri, the Gomri, were taken by Assyria. Now, the Cimmerians Q- were known to the Greeks as Qimeroi. The Babylonians called them Gimiri. And historians have also connected the Welsh term Kimri to them. So, these people then became known as the Celts in history. The Kimri, Qimri, Gimri, Qumri all uh, linking in, in, in name title the Celtic people. And even today, as, as I mentioned, to do with Wales, the, the country of Wales is referred to as Kimri in the Welsh language. So history shows that these early Celts migrated across Europe, uh, conquering and establishing themselves on the continent and in the Isles. Now not only does the the passage that they took, the name the time frame match, so too do the practices. The religious and legal order of the Celts was dominated by by pagan druids, and this class actually resembles uh the 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 pagan class of leaders that ruled ancient Israel uh in the promised land they They represent the priestly class uh quite closely. Now, there's not much we can say about the specific migration of the tribe of Zebulun uh, within the larger, uh, the larger migration of Israel itself. Again, the Bible doesn't say much about them specifically in history. But there is a clue, though, that we do have. Now, one of the ancient Zebulun, Zebulunite cities was called Nahalal, and it was a city uh, in which the Zebulonites failed to drive out the, the pagan inhabitants. So evidence has, uh, has been found, mostly in the Netherlands, of the ancient worship of a pagan god called Nehalenia. Worship of this goddess, the goddess of seafarers, she was, uh, goes back to at least the 2nd century B.C., now, etymologists are confused by this name, by its meaning. They, they guess it to be Celtic or Scythian. And that, of course, fits with our Israelite migration. So you have close similarities there. You have this pagan Zebulonite city, Nahal, uh, Nahalal, sorry, and you have Nahalenia, the pagan Dutch goddess. So perhaps she started to be worshipped in this ancient Zebulonite location, Nahalal. Now we've got to diverge a little bit and talk about the tribe of Issachar. Now this is because there's been much speculation about just who this tribe represents. Some say the Finns, Finland, uh, but a lot of research has been put forward suggesting that the Dutch Friesens are the best match for the tribe of Issachar. So without saying uh, either or, coming down dogmatically on either side, Uh, I just wanted to give some of the evidence that has been put forward for the Friesens being Issachar, just to round out this program. And in a future program on the Nordic nations, we'll uh, suggest what has been said uh, about the Finns in relation to Issachar. So the Friesens are clearly a different species, you could say, of Dutch, an entirely different demographic living within the Dutch borders. And it's significant that the Bible constantly groups Zebulun and Issachar together. They marched together in the wilderness. They're described fighting alongside one another in the battles of ancient Israel. The tribal allotments were bordering right next to each other in ancient Israel. They're described together in Chronicles. They're described together by Josephus. They're described right next to one another in that Genesis 49 Prophecy of the tribes. Now, verse 15 of this prophecy, this talks about Issachar specifically, talks about Issachar uh, specifically, and it describes that they would become a servant unto tribute. Issachar would become a servant unto tribute. And this and other passages could indicate that Issachar would become a nation within a nation, sort of a nation inside of another. And this is becomes even more clear or even more apparent when looking at Deuteronomy 33. Uh, the Deuteronomy 33 prophecy given by Moses about uh, Zebulun and Issachar. They're, again, they're grouped together. And we read, And of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going out, and Issachar in your tents. They shall call the people unto the mountain. There shall they... Apparently Zebulun and Issachar together, there shall they offer sacrifices of righteousness for they shall suck of the abundance of the seas and of the treasures hid in the sands. So this implies that Zebulun and Issachar together would do this, suck of the abundance of the seas, working together to reclaim, you could say to reclaim land from the sea, to fish from the sea, to, to, to undergo mining, to undertake mining from the sea. And it also could suggest that Issachar dwells in their tents within Zebulun. Genesis 49 indicates the Issacharites would be skilled husbandmen, farmers, and especially with a link to cattle. Now you fast forward several millennia to the last days, to the last several centuries, and what do we see? The Friesans are famous for their cattle, and especially a famous uh, dairy cow named after them. The, the Friesen cow. They were known for their cattle raising and for a long time as well, at least since the first century BC. The, the parallels go further with the Friesens. Uh, the Friesens themselves are a powerful people, individually strong and well-built. Genesis 49 calls Issachar a strong ass or a strong, strong donkey. Now in English, we've got the saying being as stubborn as an, a, as an, as an ass. Stubborn as an ass, stubborn as a donkey, and the Dutch use the term uh, "Frisa st- uh, stiff cop or I probably butchered that, which is a stubborn friesen. Now, there's there's even more potential indication in the name. the the Arama- The Aramaic word for "son of Issachar" sounds very close to the ger- Germanic word Friske. So that's a potential link. Just a, just a little link. A few links there to to round out the program on the Netherlands. Again, there's a school of thought that the Issacharites are of Finland. Uh, So we'll mention that in a future program, and the listeners can choose to make up their own minds. But what about the Dutch future now? What about the Dutch in the future? The Bible's got a lot to say about Israel's future, and in the short term, it's not good news. Now, there's numerous end-time prophecies that condemn our increasingly liberal societies for, for turning away from God. And in many ways, the, leather, the Netherlands leads the pack. It's, it is an extraordinarily peaceful and beautiful country, but extraordinarily permissive and, and liberal. And you don't have to look far to see real moral rottenness in the nation the the Netherlands has always been known as an extremely liberal society. The first nation to legalize homosexual marriage, infamous for for legalizing uh, drugs, Amsterdam being a world famous red light district. Uh, it's also renowned as a nation leading the way in euthanasia. It's essentially a nation where anything goes. Now we mentioned uh, earlier in the program the ancient work, the the Testament of the Patriarchs. Now this document describes future uh, the, uh, a future that Zebulun predicted for his people. He he did predict that his people would be under two kings, and that's interesting in and of itself. Uh, that could potentially link to the the Dutch and the Dutch monarchy, and also the Dutch Belgians living under the Belgian monarchy. But he also uh, prophesied in this document, for whatever it's worth, uh, going back to to the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, it, it does talk about the tribe working abomination in the future, working abomination. And that's certainly the case today. And Jeremiah 30, verse 7, prophesies of a coming tribulation on the nations of Israel for this. It says, Alas, for that day is great, that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Calamity is coming upon the children of Jacob, the tribes of Israel, particularly the birthright nations, Britain and the United States of America, and the scepter nation, Judah, Israel, in the Middle East. But it's also coming. Upon other Israelite nations as well, including France, Belgium, the Netherlands, etc, our people have forsaken God, and, and Daniel 12 verse one carries on this condemnation. It says, "There shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a beginning, uh, since there was a nation, even to that same time. a time of trouble such as, what, such as that never was." So this is the worst time of suffering it's describing here ever on this earth, and you just look at the recent news of the doomsday clock being moved forward 100 seconds to midnight, nuclear proliferation, you can certainly see how this time of suffering, incomparable to all human history, would come about. And God is seeking repentance from his people, people that that used to know him, the Bible constantly refers to Israel as a people who once knew God. And so our people, our nations of Israel, should know better. But there is a glorious ending, though. Uh, Both the scriptures that we've just read, Jeremiah 30 and Daniel 12, proclaim that the Messiah will return to save our peoples from destruction. Prophecies throughout the Bible reveal that the tribes of Israel will eventually turn to God, and as such, they'll, they'll reach greater status than ever before. And so you could apply that to the passage in Isaiah 9, verse uh, verses 1 to 2, which reads, But there will be no gloom for her that was in angu- anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond jordan galilee of the nations the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwell in a land of deep darkness on them has light shined and at that time our zebulonite friends will be able to have as much raw herring as they like thanks for joining us take care